Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast presented by Freedom Life Church. We hope you find today's message uplifting and encouraging as we dive into God's Word together. If you need any information about our church or this message, please go to wearefreedomlife.com. Now let's get right into it. Lacey Chabert knows Hallmark movies are repetitive, but that's kind of the point. According to Lacey Chabert, who has um, been in over 100 films, 25 or more have been Hallmark movies themselves. That's one Hallmark movie for every year she's been in the industry. Chabert has become a staple actress in the Hallmark movies. Some of you are Hallmark Channel fans especially this time of the year, the Christmas season. Uh, There was one particular holiday theme that she had recently had recorded, and the storyline goes like this. Girl meets guy. Girl learns a lot about herself. Girl and guy fall in love. End of story. How many have ever watched the Hallmark movie and said they pretty much all are like that? Right? Throw a little city person and country. Throw a little cookie fundraiser in there. Yet despite the predictability, millions of viewers will undoubtedly tune in. And Chabert understands why. She writes this. Even though a lot of movies have similar themes, I take great pride in doing my best to tell the most honest and unusual way possible while hopefully creating a character that people can see themselves in. She also went on to say, uh, because Hallmark movies are a staple in this particular season, she says, Hallmark movies are comfort food for the spirit. I think people know that they can sit down with their families and watch something that is uplifting. So, how many of you, let's just throw this out there. Maybe you're a woman and you heard your boyfriend or husband or somebody say, you know how this movie is going to end. Why watch it? Anybody? And some of you men are closet Hallmark movies. That's okay. You, your fans, it's okay to let your inner inspiration come out. All right? Whatever you need to let happen. But you still watch the movies. I'll tell you why. We like happy endings. Like a Hallmark movie, the Christmas story is literally filled with intrigue, mystery, drama. Some of those movies are not very mystery. The Christmas story is filled with a lot. And one of the things it has a lot of is inspiration. That God would use shepherds in a field. That God would use a young girl to carry the son of God. That God would use people, ordinary people, to do great things. And so without a doubt, the birth of Jesus Christ can be compared to no movie, no channel. But I would also say that the the Christmas story itself is, quote, the greatest hallmark moment of all time. So my message this morning in this brand new series of the month of December we'll be going through during this season of Christmas, Majesty 
series. The first one here this morning is entitled Greatest Hallmark Moment, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we'll be looking at is the prophecy that is found in that. Now, mind you, when we hear about prophecy, with the, I'm going to give you some scriptures. I'm going to give you some things. But I need you to understand something. If you're taking notes, now is a good time to do that. If you want to grab a pen and paper, you can do that or just write it on your phone. But there's no movie that can ever quite touch and capture the story of Jesus. No matter how great the movie is, none of them can really capture the majesty of Jesus. When observing the Old Testament and the Jewish scriptures, we know one thing. It would be beneficial for us to consider the important features because they are essential to understanding what Jesus was doing when he came to this earth. So if you would allow me to give a little bit of context, a little bit of background before we talk about the prophecy of Jesus. First, the opening 11 chapters of Genesis. How many ever read Genesis? It's a book in the Bible. First book of the Bible. If you read the first 11 chapters, you'll find this. You'll find that the chapters include the creation of the universe, the fall of man from his perfect state of innocence, the wickedness of man following that fallen state, the destructive worldwide flood, and then the repopulation of the earth. How many read that much of the Bible? So we look at the, uh, those first 11 chapters and we realize that when we look at the Bible, there's 2,000 years of history by 40 different authors, 66 books, and they all coincide with each other. It's absolutely stunning. So the second thing I need us to understand is when we look at prophecy, we have to understand something. The remainder of the Old Testament, starting from Genesis 12, remember I said the first part, the first 11 chapters are these things, right? From 12 forward, we look at, through the end of the Old Testament to the book of Malachi, we, we focus primarily on the descendants of Abraham. So I want you to note something that when they wrote from Genesis 12 on, they still kept the things in there that they did wrong. The Jewish people wrote about Jewish people, and instead of making it nicer, more palatable, they were, in fact, they kept all the parts that they were stubborn, stiff-necked, sinful, rebellious, had done things wrong, and all that, and yet these descendants were the ones responsible for preserving the Old Testament. And they kept it in there. If you were asked to write a book about yourself, there would be probably things you would leave out. Raise your hand if this is true. Let's be honest. I'm going to give you another chance. Hands down. Let's be honest. How many of you would leave things out? Come on, show of hands. Okay, that's a better picture. Some of you are like, nah, I'm pretty much perfect, you know. <laughs> if you don't know me, you should figure me out by now. I'm pretty much the most bestest thing ever. But the interesting thing was that Israelites wrote about Israelites, and people wrote about themselves, and people wrote about others in their culture, 
and they preserved it. Why? Why did they keep the things in there? They could have altered it. They could have wrote more flattering about themselves, right? But from archaeological findings, we find and we learn that other nations around them, when they were writing about themselves, they wrote flattering things. They cut out all the excess stuff. Why did the Israelites preserve the writings as they did? Well, let me answer this question in two, in two different ways. Number one, they believed that the writings they preserved were inspired by God. And you cannot change what God has said. Number two, each of the 39 books contained a calculated revelation describing who Jesus was. And it was very important that they did not take out any element that God wanted them to keep in. So how many know that throughout the Old Testament we see remnants of Jesus in there? And if we read them, we go, wow, that was where it pointed to Jesus. That's where it pointed to Jesus. And that he wanted to save the nation of Israel and more. He didn't just want to save Israel. He wanted to save everybody, you and me included. So when we look at that, in fact, the reader cannot progress far into the Old Testament to, before they start realizing that the predictions about the Messiah wasn't just about the, uh, the people of Israel. In fact, if you look at the first part of Genesis and much of the first book, it had zero to do with the Israelites. Did you know that? It had zero to do with them. It had to do with creation. It had to do with defining everyone as they were. So God started a level playing field. Everybody was created in his image, not just the people of Israel. Everyone was. And so the beginning of man shifted into this understanding that every one of us have an opportunity to know God because we were all created in his image. Then God begins to pull out stories and things and he begins to reveal stories about his people and stories about the enemies of his people. And you read that right through the Old Testament, the Amalekites, the people with kites. The... Some of you just got that. Some of you just got that. Congratulations. But we look at all the different ites, right? And they all went against, you know, some of them were allies, some of them were uh, enemies, but we look at all that. One thing is that it all points to is number one, watch this, you ready? We are all flawed. No matter what, Jew or Gentile, we're flawed. Love Jesus, don't love Jesus, we're flawed. Churchgoer, not churchgoer, flawed. Every single one of us. See, the creation account shows us God's sovereignty over creation. And the fall tells us that we need a savior. We need someone to rescue us. And the gospel tells the story of Jesus, the savior on earth. And that's, if I don't start here, the Christmas story really starts to not make as much of a, a deep sense of need. Because we could look at the birth of Jesus as, oh, here is a baby being born in the major. When instead what it really is, it's God revelation to man, God's revelation to mankind for the answer that only he could answer. Our death was imminent. 
His life was a necessity. And it makes the birth of Jesus Christ make all the more sense. Because the prophetic nature of Jesus' birth brings us to a place where we can have life more abundantly. And then it gives us an understanding why Jesus came. So let's talk about the prophecies for a moment. The prophecies is the story of Jesus and the prophecies of his first advent. We started Advent last week, was the, was the official start of Advent. And they're found throughout the Old Testament. And there's a couple different things I need you to understand. In fact, we have the stat up on the screen here. I need you to understand that two different scholars did their homework. And two different scholars, one scholar by the name of J. Barton Payne, has found as much as 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to describe to the coming Messiah. How many know that 574 verses is a lot of emphasis? Right? So the need for a Messiah, God was trying to make it very clear. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. And he, God continued to point 574 times in the Old Testament that there was a Messiah that was coming to rescue us. Why do we need rescue? Because we are flawed. So when we look at that, we then go on to say, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, another scholar by the name of Alfred Edersheim found that Jesus fulfilled at least, everybody say at least. I need you to understand the word at least, the words at least is very important. 300 prophecies he fulfilled himself. Now, I don't have that, the number in front of me, but it was well over one in a trillion possibility. And it was over that, by the way. I'm just being conservative because I don't remember the number. I was doing my study and I did not get to put it in there. It's some ridiculous high number of the possibilities of anyone fulfilling even a few of those prophecies in their lifetime. And Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies found in the Old Testament. You want to look toward the Savior? You want to look toward prophecy? You want to look at that? You need to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's coming to earth and God bringing life to our flawed state. One of the greatest tragedies in history is, is the Jewish people not recognizing that directly in front of their eyes is the Messiah. Indeed, to this very day, there are Jews that are still waiting for their Messiah. How many know we must pray that they would come to know who Jesus is? Now, there are Messianic Jews, which I am grateful for. I met many of them. In fact, I went to Bible school with some. And they were studying right alongside me. Messianic Jews, people that said, I not only am a Jew, but I believe in the Messiah had come. And, and I need to tell my people and lead my people to this Lord and Savior, Jesus. And I got to meet some of these individuals, and it's fascinating. If you've ever, because the culture that's there, and all that is taking place, and yet they can be mocked. Say, how dare you believe that that was the Messiah? Our Messiah is going to come like this. And, I, and the truth is, all of us have an idea of how they think God should come. How many of you think that God should come a certain way? When you pray, right, some of you are like, I'm going to pray and I believe God's going to answer this way. And then he doesn't and you're like, 
Okay, so I messed that one. Right? Well, the, the Jews did a similar thing. They thought the Messiah would come in a certain way, and he did not come in that certain way. In fact, he didn't come riding a horse. He came on a donkey. And so that's just one example to prove that, that, that there, was a, there was a lot that Jesus did not in their eyes fulfill, and so therefore they wrote him off as if somehow we could understand God. Isn't that foolish for us to think that we can fully understand the creator of the universe? I can hardly figure out how my DVD player works. Let alone how creation was made. Hello? You ever took apart something and said, I shouldn't have done that? Anybody? Some of you are like, I don't want to raise my hand because that's a bitter point in my house and I'd rather not fight this afternoon, Pastor Tony. Thank you very much. But let me move on to say this. There's just a couple thoughts I want to share with you. And it's two. In fact, two thoughts. Here it is. Number one, God would install the Messiah despite opposition. How many are grateful that God would install the Messiah despite opposition? So the Messiah came regardless of whether people accepted him or not. He came. But not only that, he's coming back again. Right? But that's for another day. We're talking about the first coming of Jesus. And let's be clear. God's plans and promises for humanity will not be thwarted just because the enemy doesn't like it. The enemy doesn't like the plan God has for us. So is God going to go, oh, man, he doesn't like it? Now I need to change the plans. Though I knew the plans I have for you, said the Lord. I knew them, but I lost them because the enemy doesn't like it. So I'm going to, no. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you joy, a hope, and a future. God is in that. And so we have to understand that even in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophesied the Messiah's coronation parade. He said this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt the foil of a donkey he shows that his power is not found in the animal he rides his power is found in the strength and the ability of his kingship each of us and every one of us can read of the four gospels and see the fulfillment of of this prophecy on the occasion of Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John chapter 12. Did you get that? Did you get that? Matthew chapter 21. Mark chapter 11. Luke chapter 19 and John chapter 12. All of the Gospels point to this story. Why? Because it was prophecy. They needed to show that this was not a normal person. This is the Savior of the world we're talking about here. Who's with me so far? 
Who's with me so far? See, while many of the common people welcomed Jesus as their long-awaited king, the Jewish authorities were indignant. They were angry. How could this man, the same man that sat with tax collectors and sinners, is the same one that's supposed to be my savior? You mean he's supposed to be my Messiah? Wait a second. The truth was that no authority, Gentile or Jew, could have stopped the coronation of Jesus. Jesus is and always will be, watch this now, King of kings and Lord of lords. Like it or not, he is coming back again. But again, we look at Psalm chapter 2, and I don't, it's a lot of, it's a lot to read. But let me say this. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Who sits in the heavens and laughs? The Lord scoffs at them. Did you know that when man tries to tell God what to do, God has a sense of humor, right? I know because he created me. I laugh at myself more than you do. Ask my wife. I laugh at things I do. I laugh at myself. And then she goes, you're, you're like the funniest person you know. And I'm like, yeah, because I think that was hilarious. And I realized that God does have a sense of humor. But you want to you hear God laugh? Tell him your plans and tell him it's going to work. <laughs> See, I laughed at my own joke. Because we often think that God has this like, like, oh, yeah, sure, let's do that. My plan was good, but yours is better. God laughs when the, when the world tells him what to do. He's, he actually scoffs at them, Psalm 2 says. There's a lot more to that chapter. Read it when you get a chance, Psalm chapter 2. It's amazing. See, the apostles stated in the prophecy in Psalm 2, uh, in fact, it, there were some things fulfilled when God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him on the throne after the Jewish and Roman authorities had arrested, tried, and condemned Jesus to death. You see, there was a point where Stephen was about to be stoned and he looked up to heaven. The Bible records one moment where Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. And we look at that, we see that moment, and we think for a moment, what was that? What was he doing? I believe in a lot of ways, Jesus was looking at Stephen, and he stood up, and he's like, do it. Do it. Live for me. And if you need to die for me, die for me. Because only I can give you life. And I believe in a lot of ways, and this is not, listen, I don't know, it's not found in Scripture, but in some way, I believe Jesus was giving him an applaud. I believe Jesus was applauding at the right hand of the Father. I don't have any scriptural evidence to that. But there's not everything is not defined, right? But I believe at the right hand of the Father, Jesus stood up. And I believe Jesus was like, well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? Because he was willing to put his body where his mouth was. And when I say body, I mean it because they weren't stoning him like, they weren't like throwing like little tiny stones at him. They were throwing boulders. They were about to stone him, stone him. 
and he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The Bible actually records that the king, when he would be, uh, when, when he would uh, reign in his kingdom, he would reign at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have such a high priest. Watch this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Very important verse. If you want, turn there real quick. I'll give you a minute. Yeah, now, at this point. Hebrews chapter 8, turn there, and if you feel comfortable doing so, underline or highlight this verse. Chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a high priest who was taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews is only confirming what Stephen has saw in a vision. Hebrews, which we're not entirely sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some believe it was Paul. The writing was a little different at times. But, but the, the writer of Hebrews says that the, we have a high priest. His name is Jesus, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. My second thought is this. The messianic kingdom would start small but become worldwide. Many mistakenly thought that Christ's kingdom was going to explode right in the beginning. Like when Jesus came, everything, he was going to rot. Like you ever had someone, okay, so let me ask you this question. Do you know of or knew of someone that when they walk into the room, they always have to make themselves known? Anybody know somebody like that? Okay, no pointing, just raise your hand. Right? You know somebody that when they, when they walk into the room, they want everybody to know that they're there, Right? That's what they expected the Messiah to do. That he was going to come and he was going to rock everything and just like just absolutely knock Rome off the block. He was going to show them who, who he was. X, Y, Z. He was going to do all these things. But they, the prophecies related to the kingdom always spoke as something that would start small. I don't know with 11 or 12 individuals. Even Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 prophesies that the Messiah's, quote, government would increase. If you read Daniel chapter 2 verse 34 and 35, you'll see that the kingdom started as a small, what the Bible says, a small stone. But in time, it grew to become a great mountain that filled the earth. That's Daniel chapter 2. Verse 34 and 35. So if they would have paid careful attention, they would have realized that when Messiah comes, he wasn't going to rock everything at first. He was sowing longer than he was harvesting. You get what I'm saying? Jesus' life, his 33 years, he spent more time sowing than harvesting. They thought he would harvest they thought he would come in, kick the door down, and tell everybody, I'm here, everybody chill. I've got this under control. Right? But he didn't do that. That's why he didn't ride in Jerusalem in a horse. He rode in a donkey. That fulfills scripture. And he was starting small because he needed people to be faithful in the little so then he could give them charge over much. So when he rode into the into Jerusalem, he's going, look at this. Pay attention. 
And he's, I believe when he was riding in that donkey, he was watching who was paying attention. Because in that moment, he was fulfilling scripture. Who saw it? Who recognized it? Who recognized that this is the, the humble small beginnings that would later rock the world? Here we are, the best-selling Bible. Actually, the best-selling book of all time, right? Not only that, it was taking off of the bestseller some years ago because no book would ever be number one if the Bible wasn't removed. Did you know that? How many knew that? Some of you did not know that because I didn't know that until uh, it was a couple months ago I was reading. They took the Bible off as a book that counted because no other book would ever be number one. Isn't that awesome? That's right, right? It's, this is a different book. 40 authors. I love it. Bailey was sharing a story. Talked to Bailey about this. It was pretty amazing. He was talking to someone and he was, uh, I guess there was a, I, I hope I don't destroy the story too bad, but he was, he was there and it was a store that was closing and he was buying a few Bibles and, or whatnot. He was buying that they were reduced because the store was closing. And the guy goes, what is this? He goes, it's a Bible. He goes, there's no author on it. And Bailey's like, Ask Bailey, it was hilarious. He's telling me the story and I'm laughing. I'm like, really? And he's like, I'm like, tell me more. And he's like, the guy goes, there's no author on it. He's like, okay. Um, that's because there's 40 of them. And he's like, 40? He's like, yeah. And he begins to share the story of how, you know, the basics of the Bible. I guess the guy ended up buying a few Bibles that day on his own. Like, I thought that was pretty cool. Share with, ask him the story. I, I hope I didn't butcher it too bad, but I just found it interesting how this guy's like, there's no author. There's no author on this. Who's Holman? Who's Holman? Is that the author? Is his initial CSB? What does that mean? Right? So, like, they didn't get it. Listen, the world doesn't understand because we're living in a biblically illiterate world. They don't know the scriptures. That's why they need us, the living epistles, to live this thing out so people could see that Christ is alive and he's coming back again. Who's with me? All right, let me, let me move on with this because I want to wrap this up in just a moment. The kingdom of Christ is composed of those who have heard the gospel and responded. But not only that, there's a point that happens after what? After we, we respond to God, we follow him. This is where people get tripped up. We have to follow him because in following him, we find out more and more about our calling, ourselves, and our purpose. Luke 24 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How many of you need to pray that way? Lord, open my eyes to understand. Open my mind to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer, rise again. Here he's telling them prophecy about himself. He's telling them, look at this and realize that this is important. And little did they know 
that those words that he's speaking are about him. And he says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again for the dead, from the dead and the, on the third day, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins would, it, would be proclaimed in his name to all, say everybody say to all, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And again, Christ proclaimed to the apostles in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Listen, this is not a normal man. The world was looking at Jesus as a normal man. And I want to tell you something right here, right now. Jesus was anything but normal man. He was 100% God, 100%. Well, Pastor Tony, isn't he 50-50? You can't be 100. Yes, you can't be 100-100. But he was. He was all God and all man. He needed to be. He needed to be all man to be a sacrifice. He needed to be all God to be resurrected. Hello? That is Jesus. He is not normal. If we don't start the Christmas story with the fact that they talked about him and talked about him over 300, no, excuse me, 574 times, and then he turned around and said, not only that, but I'm going to personally fulfill 300 plus prophecies while I lived on this earth. Watch this. 30 years, he wasn't even in the, quote, public ministry. He was in ministry, but not public ministry like we know it. Three years, 300 prophecies. How many of you fulfill 100 prophecies a year? Not likely, right? Jesus did it, and he did more than that. So let me conclude with this thought. Peter was granted the keys of the kingdom. After Jesus had, had, had ascended to heaven, he's giving the disciples, at that point, the apostles' authority in Matthew 16, which he used to preach the first gospel sermon. You know Acts chapter 2, right, where Peter spoke and he preached. From that start in Jerusalem, the apostles did take the gospel and the kingdom to the world as Christ prophesied. But membership in the kingdom is reserved for those who have heard and obeyed and now have decided to follow. To say that there is only one way to heaven in 2023 is viewed as intolerant. And I'm here to tell you, call us what you want, but the Bible is very specific. There is one way to heaven. I'm not stuttering. There is one way to heaven whereby we must be saved, and his name is Jesus. Let's say, for instance, I ask you to come to my house, and when you arrive, I'm at the other side of the door, and I say to you, hey, listen, grab your keys to your house and just grab any key, put it in my lock, and you'll be fine. You'll come in. Grab any key of any lock of, of your keys, and it's going to go ahead and let you in. Put it in a slot, and you'll be able to get into my house. You would think I'm absolutely out my mind, right? My keys 
are for my things. Your keys are for your things. Unless I gave you a key, your keys are not going to fit and unlock my door. So why is it that we seem to think that the intolerance has to do with in some way that that is the way that God disrespects his own creation? Listen, you will probably think I'm crazy and you will correct me. There's no way, Pastor Tony, that my keys, because I don't have any of your house keys, you would, you would be right. That's ridiculous. In fact, my keys have only one in the whole bunch that unlock my door. It's not odd to believe that only one key opens one door. It's not intolerant either. I'm telling you, there's, there's only one way to heaven whereby you must be saved, and that is only through Jesus. Jesus is the key to, to salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the key to all of mankind. So if we don't look at the prophecies and we don't understand the majesty of his kingdom, we will never really get what God is trying to do with mankind. He's trying to get us out of where we were into a right relationship with him. Can you bow your heads with me all across this room as we think about the key that is Jesus? It is not intolerant. Call it what you want. People can call it what they want. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And my prayer today is that you would know this Jesus. That if you don't know this Jesus, you could raise your hand right now and say, I want to know this Jesus. Right now, if you're in this room, you're saying, I don't think I know this Jesus. I don't think I know Jesus as my salvation, as my hope, as my future. I don't know him. Just raise your hand for a few seconds and put it right back down. Got one? Anybody else willing to say, I don't, I don't think I know who Jesus is. I don't think I know who Jesus really is. Anybody else? There is salvation in him. And if you're in this room or you're online right now and you, if you're online right now and you, you don't know who Jesus is, I invite you to just write in the uh, comments below. I invite you to write, I want to know Jesus. And you can slap an email on there if you want, if you feel comfortable doing so. And one of our team members will get back to you about how to know Jesus. But here, right here, I want to pray a prayer with you. If you're a believer or not, pray this prayer with me right now and just solidify your faith in him. Say, Jesus, you came and died for me. I, I accept that. I receive that. And I'm thankful that you died for me. I believe it and confess it that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's coming back again. Let him come and get me. I love you, Jesus. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And let me walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for every person at the sound of my voice that has made a commitment to say yes to Jesus. Lord, it's more than just a prayer. There's a lot more that goes on after that. But it's a start. I ask you today that you would allow the Holy Spirit to do great things. Move our hearts to realize that the prophecies, all 300 plus, 
point to you being the hope that we've been looking for. May we never forget who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name I pray.